Now, it's possible that you can be a Christian without having read The Pilgrim's Progress. But I wouldn't want to chance it. Pilgrim's Progress is one of my favorite books. And there's a a scene in there that's memorable, of course, where Pilgrim and uh, the two pilgrims are Christian and faithful. And they're making their way to the celestial city. They have to first get to the, the wicker gate, the narrow gate that leads on the path to eternal life. And on their way there, it's a path that all pilgrims must travel. There's some cities, and they, they meet various obstacles. But in one of these cities has developed a, a carnival, a year-round fair. And it's a fair about vanity, hence the phrase vanity fair. This is a, a path, again, that all pilgrims travel. And the devil realized this. The devil realized that everybody making their way to the, the, the path and the light and the eternal city would be going through, through this city, this earthly city. And so he set a trap there. The trap is this, this area of commerce, like a flea market, so to speak, or a carnival. You could use any of those words for it because you could play games there, but you could also buy anything you wanted to. The city has this perpetual hustle and bustle about it where you could get anything you wanted, any kind, anything you wanted to eat, anything you wanted to, to wear. But most of the wares that were for sale in the city targeted people's vanity. You could get an honorary degree there. You could get a bigger house. You could get better clothes for yourself, a better name or better reputation. You could get gold and silver there, of course, as well. But most of it was after a person's sense of pride. With this perpetual fair, they trapped many pilgrims who were trying to get to the celestial city but got sidetracked by vanity instead. And so when we meet our two pilgrims, faithful and Christian, on their way through this city, they try to stay resolute. They keep their eyes fixed on the, the view of heaven in front of them. They don't fit into the city, of course. They're not dressed the same. They don't want the things that are for sale there. But the longer they're walking through, the, the tighter the crowd gets and the people start hanging on them, begging them to buy stuff. And they take courage, reminding themselves that Jesus himself, the, they're, the one they're following, he walked through this city too. He was offered everything in the world, yet he resisted, so certainly they could as well. And yet the longer they walked, the more people were hanging on them, begging with them, pleading with these two pilgrims to buy what was for sale in this city. Finally, they were were trapped in the crowd. They looked around with their eyes and they saw you could buy all kinds of things here. Every kind of sin was for sale there. There was drunkenness, cheating, murders, immorality, all the kind of carnival games and diversions of this world. Worst of all, Christian points out, worst of all were these churches that were built there as if their goal was to entertain the crowd. (laughs) And as the the voice and the tumult rose with people asking them, what will you buy, what will you buy? Finally, Christian got resolute. He looked at the crowd and he declared with a loud voice, we buy the truth. That's what we're here for. We buy the truth. We have only an appetite for truth. We're not going to fitter away all of our resources and wealth and attention and devotion and affections on things that don't matter. We buy only the truth. They became resolved to not let their eyes dwell on things that would take them away. In their heart was reserved a spot, and that spot was only for the truth. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, I won't tell you how it all ends, but they're immediately arrested and put on trial in the town, put on trial before the judge for being so treasonous that they would say they're only concerned with the truth. I mean, nothing slays vanity faster than a good hard look at truth. 
This morning, this story, I hope, serves as a reminder for us about the importance of being devoted to the truth. It's my prayer that as you look yourself in the mirror, that you see a person staring back at you that could say the same thing, that could say with Christian and faithful, we buy the truth. Are you that kind of person? Our world seems scarce of those kind of people, doesn't it? It's hard to find somebody who says, I live for the truth. I mean, that's the nature of this book right here. This book defines us, but few are the people who are defined by it. Few people live for the word. We so quickly chase all kinds of other things. We chase our own pride. We chase our own vanity as if our, our skills or athletic ability or our talents to, should be what define us or as if our degree or what kind of school we go to or what kind of job we have as if that's what should define us and we lose sight of the fact that this is the book that should define us. This is the commodity we're after. There's a story in the the book of Job, in the middle of Job, where the author describes mines that are built into mountains, tunnels that go into deep into the earth, where people swing back and forth in the top of these, these caves and these labyrinths that go underground to remove gold and silver and bronze and onyx from the, from the earth. But then the author of Job asks, where is there a mine for God's word? Who devotes themselves to the word of God like that. I mean, we dig into the mountain for earthly treasures as if that had surpassing value while taking our eyes off of the word of the Lord. Listen, this book is the commodity we're after. This is what should define us. This alone has surpassing wealth and value. We know that the truth of this book is what should capture our hearts. Its worth is more than that of rare jewels. This book is more value than a maxed out 401k. A fully vested retirement is nothing compared to being a master at this book. We so easily lead our lives as if having a diversified portfolio is what matters, not a diversified knowledge of this book. Talk to students that think the grades they get in school will define them or the college they go to, that that will be the mark upon their life. They'll be set apart from the world by the name on their diploma that will hang on the, the wall. Certainly the world will look over their shoulder and see the name of the school they graduated from. They think that's the most significant thing about them or what they majored in or what they do for a job or, or again, their talent or their ability or just their personality. That will define them. Listen, this is the book that should define you. This is what has value. You're defined by how well you know this book. That's it. This book, how well you handle it, how well you know it, that says more about you than anything else. That says more about you than what school you went to, who you voted for. <laughs> Do you understand that? This has more to say about you, how well you know this, has more to say about what kind of person you are than your politics or the sports teams that you like or the fashion that you wear. This book is it. If you're truly a pilgrim in this world, and this world is not your home, then you should proclaim with Christian and faithful, we buy the truth. Where is such a person? Ezra chapter seven describes one of the rare people in the world who is like that. 
The man Ezra towers over scripture. He casts a shadow over all of the Old Testament, such was his ability to handle the word of God. And I know we're, we're so accustomed to say, you know, the Old Testament figures, they're not our heroes, right? That's kind of been beaten into us. We don't find heroes in the Old Testament. We find fallen people who've been redeemed by a, a loving Lord and used for his purposes. So, so I get that. You know, the David and Goliath battle, the hero of David versus Goliath is not David, it's God, Amen. Nevertheless, <laughs> Ezra is one of those people that just towers. He is truly the hero of this book. I was talking with a friend last night. We were just thinking out loud, you know, who in the Old Testament, what, what men in the Old Testament would even be elder qualified by the standards of the New Testament? Take the standards in 1 Timothy 3. Do any of our Old Testament heroes even, would they even be qualified to be an elder at a church? And the answer is, for most of them, no. But Ezra is one of those rare exceptions. He has such integrity and he stands out. The Jews, even to this day, consider Ezra the single most significant post-exilic man. Post-exilic means after Israel was kicked out of the promised land. Remember, Israel had hundreds of years of monarchy, 400 years for Israel, 700 or so for Judah, and they were kicked out of the, the land. They were removed from Israel around the middle of the 550 or so BC. They were finally kicked out. All of the God's covenant was fulfilled with them. God made a covenant with Israel that if they didn't keep his word and they didn't walk in his way, they would lose their land. So all the promises from Moses all the way to Manasseh told the Israelites that if they didn't treasure God's word, they would lose the land. And by the time Manasseh was king, they had lost it. They had become worse pagans than the pagans that Joshua kicked out 800 years earlier. They were, they were gone. Israel had become totally secular, totally depraved, and so God exiled them. He had the temple torn down by the, by the Babylonians. They pulled it apart brick by brick. All the fancy gold that had been put in there by Solomon, we've been studying that in 1 Kings, all that's gone by the end of 2 Kings. The place is, is des- desolate. The streets of Jerusalem are lined with bodies. The Babylonian army had dashed the infants upon the rocks, scripture tells us. The place had been decimated. Now seven or eight decades later, the Persians are beginning to rebuild it. The Persians are allowing the Israelites to move back to the promised land. They're on their way back. And everything from that moment forward, that's post-exilic. Every moment from the first time the Israelites came back, it's even now, that's post-exilic. And Ezra is the most significant post-exilic feature or man in the Old Testament. He leads the Jews back. He begins to work on the temple, constructing the temple. In a, you know, almost two decades had gone by before Ezra arrived. The Jews had been working on the temple, but they stopped and they started and they stopped. Haggai rebukes them. We looked at that last year. It had just collapsed. But God had raised up a man for that hour. God had raised up a man for a country that was in desperation. He'd raised up a a man for a nation that was supposed to be devoted to God but was not, and that man was Ezra. And his entire life could be summarized in one verse. That verse is chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study Yahweh's law, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That is the man Ezra. It said that he had memorized the law of Moses. When they came back from Israel, they didn't have scrolls everywhere. They didn't have iPhones with the the Old Testament on it. Their books had been burned. Their scrolls had been vanquished. But Ezra, fortunately enough, had the word of God memorized. It said that he recreated much of the Old Testament from his own memory. This is owing to his fame and prominence in Israel. This is why he's so highly exalted. 
He's called the second Moses. Many Jews to this day refer to Ezra as the second Moses. He was a powerful man. You know, every other post-exilic feature or post-exilic man, you get one reference to him. You know who his father was. That's it. Nehemiah, you know who his father was. Zerubbabel, who his father was. The, the minor prophets, who their fathers were. Then you find Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through verse 5. It's a long genealogy. You have generations of his story. That's how significant he is. What made him so significant? One feature. He was thoroughly completely devoted to the Lord. Six times in Ezra 7, chapter 7 and 8, it says the hand of the Lord was upon him. Have you heard that idiom? You might say God's hand is upon that person or would the hand of God be upon you? You might say it as a prayer. You know, that's an idiom that comes from Ezra's life. God's hand was upon this man. Chapter 7, verse 6, verse 9, verse 28. Chapter 8, verse 18, verse 22, verse 31. The hand of God was on Ezra. It means that God is using Ezra to bless him. God was, was honoring his ways. And, and why would God do that? Now, certainly God can bless him ever he wants to bless. God can use him ever he wants to use. He can raise up a donkey if he wants to or a prophet or a priest. He can use whatever. But Ezra is not just whatever here. The, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah lets you know that Ezra had the hand of God upon him for one reason. He was devoted to the Lord. There's a direct link in Ezra's life between his devotion to the Lord and the Lord's favor and blessing upon him. Listen, devotion to God solicits from God blessing and success. Are you devoted to the Lord like Ezra was? Is your heart reserved for the Lord? Are you set to follow the Lord and his word? We often talk about how much we want to read our Bible or how much we want to fight sin in our life or how much we want to defeat sin in our life or how we want to repent of sin or grow spiritual fruit in our life. We talk about that so much, but you start to wonder after year after year after year how much of it is just talk. Is there a real commitment in your heart to follow the word of the Lord? Is there a real commitment in your heart to be a man or a woman of integrity? Is there a real commitment in your heart to take a stand for the Lord? You see such a person with Ezra. And let me just pull out of this three indicators of Ezra's devotion to God. Or another way to say it, how do you know if you're devoted to God? There's three indicators of a heart that's devoted to the Lord. Three symptoms, three indicators of someone who is set aside for the Lord. And these three aren't just chosen at random. They're given to you in verse 10. There's an order to them. They have to be in this order. If you reverse any part of this order, the whole thing falls apart. So we'll take them in the order that's there. For Ezra, verse 10 says, had set his heart, first indicator, commitment to God's word. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh. The first indicator is commitment to God's word. Notice the phrase, Ezra had set his heart. That's, a, again, a Hebrew idiom for anchoring your heart somewhere. And you could say your, your heart inclines that way. Your heart reaches out towards certain things. That's what it means. You know, think of a guy who likes a specific kind of car, specific year, specific color. He has the exact car that he, he loves in his mind. And when he drives by it on the road, you, you see him looking at it. And maybe he'll even start talking about it. Or he'll point it out to everybody in the car. Hey, look at that. That's the exact car that I, that I love or that I like. Or look at it. And you can almost see his heart reaching out from inside of him towards that car. 
as if his heart could grab it through the window. That's what it means to set your heart towards something, that your heart inclines towards it. When your heart sees it, it longs for it. It wants to go that way. Some of you have your heart set towards specific sports teams. You're walking on the street in Old Town Alexandria and through those, those the windows of all the bars there, you see the TVs on, on and you look through the window and there's that team playing on TV. And so you stop and you look through the window at your team and you see, you squint, you can barely make out the score and yes, your team is winning or sad, your team is losing. <laughs> and you can almost see that person's heart reaching out through the window and reaching out into the TV and reaching all the way to Dallas. <laughs> what it means to have your heart inclined somewhere. It reaches there. It goes there. Do you notice what Ezra's heart was inclined to? He set his heart to God's word. He set his heart to study the word of God. His, His heart gravitated with love and with longing to study the word of God. It wasn't just towards God's word in general. It was to study the word of God. That's what his heart was devoted to. Another way of saying this phrase, to set his heart, is he anchored his heart. This is what anchored his heart there. Our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? As the, as the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to leave the God we love. And so you need something to anchor your heart in place. You know, you don't let your dog run free. You, you tether him. You leash him there so he can roam to and fro, but he can't get too far away. What tethers your heart? I mean, oftentimes it's stunning. People take more care to tether their dog than they do their heart. What keeps your heart tied to the word of the Lord? What keeps your heart tied to God? And the answer is simple. A love, a devotion to study God's word. It's the anchor to your heart. It's a phrase you see elsewhere in the Bible. David's last words to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 19. David went to his grave telling Solomon, now set your heart and your soul to seek Yahweh your God. Solomon, if you wanted to follow the footsteps of his father David, who had a heart after God's a heart after God, Solomon would set his heart to seek out the Lord. Solomon told Israel and he dedicated the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, the end of his long prayer to Israel. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to Yahweh our God, he told the Israelites, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. You want to be pleasing to the Lord? Set your heart towards him. Set your heart towards his word. Your heart needs to be anchored in the word of God or it will drift. You will never be a man or a woman of integrity and devotion if you are not a man or woman devoted to studying God's word. Oh, please don't spend more time pursuing vanity than you do the word of the Lord. Please don't act as if your, your job or your studies have more to define you than the word of the Lord. And it's not just that the word of the Lord defines you based on how it describes you. That's true, of course. It's not just that, though. It's that you're defined by how well you know this book. That's what makes you who you are. Solomon challenged the Israelites to be devoted to God's word. Ezra, it says, was skilled. Chapter 7, verse 6, draw your eyes up earlier. When you first meet Ezra, this Ezra, it says, this is his introduction to the book. He's the hero of the book. You don't meet him until halfway through, so I I feel okay that we parachute in for one Sunday into the middle part here. Verse six, Ezra, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, look at this phrase, skilled in the law of Moses. 
He knew all about the law of Moses. Ezra the priest, verse 11, after this, was given a letter to bring back to Israel when he went. He was a man, look at the phrase, learned in the matters and commandments of Yahweh. So it didn't come naturally to Ezra. Don't make excuses for yourself here and say, yeah, but Ezra was a a priest or Ezra was a scribe. That's why he was so good at God's word. No, look at the word that is used here in verse 11. He was learned in this. He studied it. He wasn't born knowing God's word. He made himself learn it. Ezra started a school of scribes. And this school would eventually become the Pharisees when Jesus came to earth. More on that later. (laughs) But Ezra started a school of scribes that would be devoted to memorizing God's word like Ezra had memorized it. He devoted others to memorizing it as well. And it was said with these scribes, you could roll up the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You could roll it up in a scroll and you could pierce it with a needle And that these scribes could tell you every word that needle would go through all the way down. Now, I don't know if that's legend or not, but at the very least, it was plausible. That was these these men. These are the men that knew how many words were on each, each scroll, how many words were in each section or unit of the scripture. These people were devoted to memorizing the word of the Lord. And again, it didn't happen naturally. They were learned in the scriptures. What makes somebody like this? They're attracted by the beauty of the Lord. To use the new covenant language, they they see the gospel. They see that God designed a plan where God would become a man and lead a sinless life. And he would die on the cross bearing our sins. All the punishment that God has for all the sin in the world, he pours out on his son. So his son dies in our place, rises from the grave on the third day. You can have your sins forgiven by placing your faith in the fact that Jesus died for your sins. When you do that, you become a new creation. Your heart is changed. You have your spiritual eyes open. Your sins are forgiven and you have a relationship with the Lord through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is all designed by God. And so if this has happened to you, you that should strike you as beautiful. That should strike you as the wisdom of God. That should strike you as the most important thing about you, that, that God would become a man and die for your sins and your heart should be drawn towards that. Well, where is your heart drawn to when it's drawn towards that? And the answer has to be the word of God. That's where you learn about the gospel. The beauty of Christ should so captivate you that you're drawn towards studying God's word. That's what it means to be an expert in it. You're learned in it. You study it because you love it. This was Ezra. Ezra knew his Bible. He knew where to find information. He didn't walk around with a concordance. It was in his head. I remember back when I used to referee soccer. I was a, an expert in the, the rules of soccer. For example, I was such an expert, I know that they're not called rules in soccer. They're called laws. Did you know that? This is the snobbery of soccer. They don't have rules. They have laws. <laughs> They're universally governing everybody. Even whether you play soccer or not, the law still applies. You know, my test, I had to take an annual certification test. And one part of the test was they would, would give you a blank notebook and you had to recreate the rule book. You had to draw, you had to write the rule book from scratch. I had to be able to do that. After first hour, somebody came up to me and said, yeah, the thing about soccer is what'd you do with, after you finished the first page, what'd you do with all the rest of the blank pages? <laughs> This was Ezra's ability with the word of the Lord. He could draw it out from scratch. He didn't need a concordance. He was familiar with God's word, not because he was a genius, but because he was diligent to study. He's called a scribe four times in chapter seven. 
six times in Nehemiah 8. He's called a scribe. That doesn't mean his occupation. It meant that he was devoted to writing out the word of the Lord. Remember, there was a Senate election some odd years ago, 10 years ago, before I cared about politics. So I don't even remember the, the parties of the two people involved, but there was a debate. These two Senate candidates in Delaware, and one asked the other if they even knew which amendment contained the, the freedom of religion in it. And the other candidate didn't know which amendment of the Constitution has the freedom of religion in it. And you know, that's okay for, for many Americans to not know what amendment that is. I think that's okay. It's not a big deal. But it's not okay for a senator, right? Do you agree with me that a senator should at least have a vague idea of the amendments of the Constitution? A vague idea? You're on board with that? A vague idea? Sweet. If you're going to be a senator in the United States, you should have at least a vague idea of the amendments of the Constitution. What about you as Scripture? Where does the Bible describe the Trinity? Do you know? Do you have a vague idea? Where does the Bible define marriage? Do you know? Do you have a vague idea? Where does the Bible say what it takes to be saved? Do you have at least a vague idea? How many gospels are there? Why? Why are there four? What are the differences between them? Do you have, I don't know, a vague idea? You hear somebody tell you, oh, so-and-so, some superstar died this week. You know, they were so generous with their money. They gave away all of their money. They constantly helped people who were poor and in need. They were such figures of charity. You know, they didn't believe in Jesus, of course. They rejected Christ, but they were so generous. You know, what does the Bible say about that kind of person? Do you know where to go? Where would you turn? What does the Bible say about evolution? Do you know? A vague idea where you can find something about that? I understand people in the world not knowing, but should Christians have answers to those questions? Because Israel was governed by Mosaic law, these scribes were the attorneys in that society. They had to be able to bring the word of God to bear on any situation. I think the same is true for us. And listen, I'm not appealing to you to go get a book on key doctrines of the Bible and read it. Don't go get a book on key doctrines of the Bible. This book, read this more this year. This is what you should study. This is what you should learn. This is what you should memorize. I mean, after all, this is literally the read your Bible more sermon. <laughs> the goal is that you would devote yourself to studying this. That's what it means to be devoted to the word of God. That's the first indication of somebody who is devoted to God is they're devoted to the word of God. They're committed to the word of God. Second, they're committed to holiness. The second indicator of devotion to God is a devotion or a commitment to holiness. Notice the second thing. Ezra had set his heart to study Yahweh's law, but secondly, and to do it. And to do it. I mentioned earlier this, this group of scribes that Ezra started, fast forward 400 years, they became the Pharisees. The Pharisees were experts in God's law. They knew everything about God's law. They knew every jot and every tittle, how many words were on every, every page. They knew the whole thing. The problem was they didn't do it. That's why Jesus said about the Pharisees, when Jesus came, he saw the descendants of Ezra. They knew the word of God in their head, just not in their hearts, not in their feet or their hands. And so Jesus said, you know, you should do whatever the Pharisees say. Just don't do whatever they do. 
because they were hypocrites. He said they can't take the the speck out of somebody else's eye because they've got the log in their own eye. But listen, back it up again to Ezra. That's not true about Ezra. Ezra could take the speck out of somebody's eye because he didn't have the log in his own eye. He sent himself to study the word of God. And then it says in verse 10, to do it, to do it. You can't confront somebody on sin if you're doing that same sin. You lack a little bit of the integrity. I once saw a child correct her parents for eating with their mouth full. The problem was the child did the correction with her mouth full. It lacks a little bit of the, uh, I guess you could say, the sincerity, the persuasive ability. Ezra studied the word of God, but then he did it. He followed it through. Devotion is evident in action. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not just hearers only, and thereby deceiving yourself. The person who just hears it but doesn't do it deceives himself. You know, every Christian wants to be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. You aspire to be transformed into God's image. You understand what that means is that you're, you're, you're reading God's word. It's changing what you know about God, changing what you love about God, which changes how you act towards him. In Israel, they come from a long line of losers who didn't take the practice of God's word seriously. They neglected to do what the word said. Not so with Ezra. He studied it, he knew it, and then he could do it. That's where his zeal for holiness comes from. And Ezra is marked by his zeal for holiness. You see him over and over in this book uh, confronting sin, excising sin from Israel because he had first taken it out of his own heart. He had a zeal for holiness that came from a knowledge of God's law. This was not just a zeal for purity, but a zeal for being conformed to the image of God. A man or woman who's devoted to God to his word will be bothered by sin in the world. It'll vex you. It'll grieve you. You'll see sin that's tolerated and celebrated and it should affect you. It should trouble you. The question is, how do you respond? There's no extra points for going up to your bedroom and pouting about how bad things are these days. The response is that you go into the world and you keep the word of God. You confront sin where you see it. You evangelize the lost and you confront sin in believers. You're so vexed by it that you, you call it out. You demonstrate your life is marked by humility, love, compassion, and a burden to see people walking rightly with the Lord. Ezra did this. You'll see as you study Ezra on your own, you'll see Ezra confronting sin in people. He could do that with integrity because he was walking the walk. Do you believe that the word of God is the sword that will excise sin from your life? You know, when you look into the mirror and you're able to declare, we buy the truth, do you understand what you're saying that you treasure? What you're saying this book can do is this book can look into you and it can identify sin in your life. Is it sharp enough to cut it out of your life? Do you know the word of God well enough that it is sharp to penetrate into you? Or do you keep the word of God as a distance, out of striking range, so to speak? We were having, family was having dinner at a friend's house a while ago and we heard upstairs the sound, we were downstairs, we heard upstairs the sound. And we thought, are the kids moving furniture upstairs? What's going on? But fortunately it wasn't my house so I didn't care that much. (laughs) So... My wife goes to investigate, and she comes back saying that our, our three-year-old was, had found a giant sword in the house and was lugging the sword down the stairs. 
<laughs> so, first question, were the stairs dented? Obviously, that's your question, right? The, the girls were fine. Were, were the stairs dented? No, it turns out the sword wasn't sharp enough to dent the stairs. It was just a blunt sword, thud, 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 but it couldn't dent the stairs. Is that how you treat the word of God? Can it dent your heart? Or do you know it so superficially that it just bounces off of you? The word of God hits your heart like this. Doesn't do anything. Or do you set yourself to, nut, to study it so that you can know it and you can do it, but it pierces into you. It shows you where the sin is in your life and it carves it out. It shows you what to do and it pokes you in, in the back and makes you walk where it points. The way you handle the Bible, is it sharp enough to poke you in the front, sharp enough to poke you in the back? Can it compel you to walk in a direction? Someone who's devoted to the word of God, it will drive them. That's the mark of a devoted life. Thirdly, a commitment to discipleship. A commitment to study the word of God, a commitment to holiness, and thirdly, a commitment to discipleship. Notice how this ends. Ezra set his heart to study the law of Yahweh, to do it, and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. This all is building towards discipleship here. Ezra wasn't a, you know, a spiritual hamster here. He's not hoarding everything he's learning. He's giving it out. He's in Vanity Fair. He's buying the truth, but he's giving it away afterwards. He's accumulating it and giving it away. Ezra wasn't after growing in knowledge and growing in holiness for his own sake. It was all about teaching others. And he could teach with authority because he was walking the walk. This is what he did in Israel. Later, you'll see Nehemiah 8, the passage that David read earlier for a scripture reading. You see Ezra having all the Israelites together, and he's reading the word of God to everybody. They're standing six hours from like 6 a.m. to noon. They're standing together in the open as Ezra's reading the word of God to them. And Ezra had these armies of scribes. You wonder, why didn't Ezra do this back in Ezra chapter 7? Because he had to build up his army of scribes first. And he had those scribes scattered through the crowd. And as Ezra was reading the word of God, these scribes are everywhere explaining to people what it means, how they're supposed to live because of it. Ezra spent years teaching the scribes who in turn spend years teaching everybody else. This was the, the model even in the Old Testament. It was preaching backed up by his living but designed for discipleship by everybody else. That's the model of Ezra. And of course, if you remember the scene in Nehemiah 8, it's a, it's a powerful scene. Ezra standing behind the podium reading and explaining the Bible while well, the people were listening insatiably and they began falling on the ground, kissing the ground out of humility, followed by weeping and tears of joy and this lasted for seven days. Six times it says in that chapter that people understood the word of the Lord. Six times it says they understood it because of Ezra's knowledge. He was so knowledgeable, so focused, so passionate, so obedient, so clear that the people could only respond by worship and by weeping. That comes from being in the word, knowing it and applying it to your own life. Listen, every one of you, I've said this time and time again, but it bears repeating. Every one of you should be in two relationships. You should be being discipled by somebody godlier than you and you should be discipling somebody less godly than you. That should be the mark of Christianity. Everybody should be in those relationships. And how do you find somebody to, to disciple you? You look for somebody godlier than you and you go to learn from them. And how do you find somebody to, that you can disciple? You lead a godly life and wait for them to be drawn to you. 
Because where your heart goes, your feet will go after. And where your feet go, your reputation goes. You will be known by how well you know the word of the Lord. This is not something you do in a week. This is not something you do in a year. This is something you do in your lifetime. You set yourself in your life to become an expert in the word of the Lord so that you can teach others. And as the years go by and the decades go by, your reputation will become that of somebody who knows the word of the Lord. And people want to find somebody who knows the word of the Lord. They will come to you. That's the model of Ezra. Doesn't happen overnight. It happens through you having a heart that wants to learn the word of the Lord and your reputation suddenly becomes, hey, that person knows the word of the Lord. That's your challenge, to be that kind of person, to be the person who devotes themselves to God's word. Listen, every one of us is going to be a teacher in some capacity. Moms and dads will teach their kids. Small group leaders teach their small groups. Pastors and elders and evangelists are teaching even non-Christians, trying to reach them with the gospel and training new converts. This is the, this is the New Testament Christianity. We're all giving truth away but you can't give away what you haven't first purchased. And you don't purchase it with money, of course. You purchase it with your own devotion, your effort, your discipline, your integrity, your work ethic by pouring into the word of the Lord. Your reputation is that which you love and cherish and are known by. Your reputation becomes that which your heart is set to when it reaches out. Move past mere reading, move past mere studying and go into applying which goes into reputation change, which goes into teaching the word of the Lord. Don't be an expert in baseball stats. <laughs> Don't be an expert in video games. Don't be an expert in movies. Don't be an expert in other people's lives. Be an expert in this book. You know, we're, we live in Vanity Fair, don't we? The beltway is that path. <laughs> we live in Vanity Fair. People around us clamoring to know, hey, what do you think about the gnats, the trumps, the caps, the schools, the malls, the traffic, the weather, the coffee, anything? What do you know about any of those things? Any secret inside knowledge in any of those things? Don't be the person people come to for answers about that. Be the person people come to for answers about this. What does the book say? Let that be you. And if you devote your heart, if you set your heart to studying, applying, and teaching the word of God, then you'll be able to look yourself in the mirror and declare, I buy the truth. Lord, we're thankful that you and the gospel and the kingdom, together it's a pearl of great price. We could never have enough work and merit on our own to accomplish it, but you give us the gospel as a gift. It's a gift that is free, and yet it costs us everything. So Lord, we set our hearts to walk in your way. We know fruit grows naturally, but we know farmers build a trench around the tree and water and fertilize. So Lord, give us the, the work ethic this year to devote ourselves to the word of God. We know that you give the, the growth to some plant and some water, but you give the growth. And so, Lord, this year we want to pour our hearts into the word of God. We know it's a supernatural experience that apart from the ministry of your spirit, we wouldn't be able to behold anything that's there. And so we pray this year as we study the word of the Lord that you would cause us to grow in it. Let us be defined as men and women who are men and women of the book. Lord, we want to buy the truth. And we're thankful that you, you give it to us. Now help us 
give it to others this year. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.